When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the haunting of Hill House. This week, I have another great discussion with a special guest. I sat down with my friend, Becca, to talk about the Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House, and we really got into it. It's a very, I would say, well-covered conversation. Um, So all you have to do is sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. Um, Okay, so welcome to the pod. Today we are uh, in discussion with my friend Becca, who is a, a friend, a mother, a working woman, a college graduate. She's all in one, um, and also um, a little scaredy cat, but that's okay because we're here to. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> we're here to pull back the onion layers of the Hill House series um, to maybe understand why it's so scary, and to talk about some of the aspects of it that are more terrifying than ghosts, such as addiction and <laughs> family drama. <laughs> Um, so before we start, I'm just going to give a quick rundown on the plot. So spoilers, if you haven't seen Hill House yet, um, really recommend it. It's on Netflix. It's about uh, 10 episodes. So you can definitely binge it in a weekend if you really <laughs> give it your all. Um, but the main premise is that we are introduced to this family of five children. So we have Stephen, the oldest son, uh, Shirley, who is the, the oldest daughter, uh, Theodora, who's known as Theo, she's the next oldest daughter, and then the twins, Luke and Eleanor, who we call Nell. In the series, we see them living in this like huge old mansion. Their parents are renovating it, um, and then something goes horribly wrong, and the father and the children flee in the middle of the night. And that kind of like starts off the series. And as we we go back, well, it's a lot of time jumping, right? So we go into the future where we see all the children as adults. And as we follow their adult lives, we get flashbacks to what happened um, that night in the house where they had to flee. And eventually it's revealed that the mother, Olivia Crane, went a little cuckoo, (laughs) that's the clinical term, um, (laughs) and was attempting to kill her children to keep them um, in the house uh, as ghosts so they could live in the house for, uh, for eternity together. And that's why the children had to flee. And the series concludes with Nell returning to the home Uh, Well, the series doesn't necessarily conclude with it, but we realize that at the end that Nell is dead in the house as well, and the house now has captured, um, like, their souls, and, but unfortunately the rest of the family kind of, like, escapes and doesn't, and is able to burn down the house. (laughs) Um, So that's the premise. (laughs) But before we get into any of the research, I just, Becca, like, what are your, what's your take on Hill House? I thought Hill House was so layered it is a show that I've watched a handful of times now. And yes, I am continuously scared by it. 
I don't, prior to Hill House, I didn't think that I scared very easily. Mm. Um, I've consumed horror media for a, quite a long time. Mm-hmm. I was probably one of the first kids in second grade reading Stephen King <laughs> <laughs> because I burned through goosebumps like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. Um, and no one was watching the stacks. Nobody cared. No where I was going nobody double checked what I was checking out now it's a, a wild west <laughs> it was the early 90s early 2000s were such a wild west in the library in the summertime anyway I think of Mike Flanagan's works I've just really enjoyed the cast of Hill House mm-hmm. and how they all fit together like you've mentioned in the synopsis it's based on the family and then the house and how the two mingle and how the house learns about the family and really gets to know the dynamic of the family and then plays it off Mm -hmm. against one another and really leans in to their weaknesses Mm -hmm. um and that's kind of I think that's one of my favorite I I don't know if I would call it a trope but that's one of my favorite things in horror is when buildings and places have this sentience that Mm -hmm. just dives into its inhabitants and just becomes a physical like a presence Mm -hmm. be it mental or physical or emotional um, like we see in the fictitious representations of Amity the Horror and things like that. It just gets into people's minds and it learns them because technically the entire time they're living in the house, they're being observed. Right. Um, which is just very uh, scary. <laughs> a very scary thought. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for um, verbalizing that shudder that I physically did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You guys can't see this, but Becca is like, she's scared. <laughs> I'm terrified. I'm, I am legitimately terrified at this very moment well and I I appreciate that you also brought up Stephen King because I when I've described the series to people I've said you know have you ever seen The Shining and the concept of like the Overlook Hotel being such an evil place that has it has become an entity of its own and that's kind of how Hill House Hill House is set up as so many horrible things have happened in this home um, but specifically so many mothers have killed their children in this home that that's the the house has taken on this almost like its own identity its own its own psychology and it is infecting the people who live there and I like how you say yeah the second you step in that house you're being observed so even though some of the characters were like five years old when they lived in that house they are still impacted by it into adulthood because of how like powerful the presence is yeah it's um the idea of the house observing the first family Mm. and learning like creating that pattern and then maybe it's just the echo of a ghost of poppy coming back in and affecting olivia saying uh this is what we do in this home Mm -hmm. this is what has to be done in this home and even though the pattern isn't exact it's not mom dad and three children it's still pushing that agenda in a way that mother needs to take care of her children yes and that was some of the research that we pulled for this episode was about this idea of like motherhood and horror um and this comes from an article by um patterson which i think actually was like a speech <laughs> at a conference but either way it's an article you'll and i'll have posted in the sources list um but basically she posits that olivia is wrestling with this identity of motherhood and womanhood and the house is using that against her to reinforce there's only one way to be a mother right and that if you don't truly love your children you won't keep them safe in the house and we see this in the show of olivia becomes very she perseverates on this idea of like the world is so dangerous my children are not safe 
and you could see how the house and you know whether it's poppy's presence or whatever happened in that house before <laughs> it it exploits that fear that i think you could speak to as a mother right of like i want to protect my children and it exploits that fear and turns it into a thing where you end up harming your children by not allowing them to have like freedom but i don't i don't want to put that all on you <laughs> It's the analogy of hug, you're hugging me too tight. Mm -hmm. I can't breathe. It's, you know, I was just thinking about it in a rewatch. I realized, I, I re, I guess, learned that Olivia, the mother is suffering from migraines the entire time mm -hmm. in the house. I can't quite remember if the narrator mentioned that they were present before they moved into the house in that summertime to do the fun house flip. Um, <laughs> fun <but> easy <laughs> I am wondering if that was either a manifestation of just her of like her pushing off the presence of the house mm. of her trying to fight off this need and then when the house realized it couldn't just um, influence her in that way it presented Poppy who had a face and a well-groomed appearance and was able to speak to her quote unquote, mother to mother, right. um, to really sell essentially this idea of your children are not safe outside of this house. They need to be protected and you're the one that's going to protect them. Right. And right. And even sort of like the house and Poppy inserts themselves into the relationship she has with her husband. And it mm -hmm. becomes like, you cannot trust your husband. He's not a good father. You know, he's not protecting your, like you are literally the only one Mm -hmm. who can protect your children and I believe that actually the show does kind of insinuate that she had some sort of episodes before they come to the house whether but they're not clear if it's if it's just the migraines or if it's some other like mental health crisis that she's had before mm -hmm. but we, yeah it, it is kind of presented as like this was something that was happening before that she's able to manage but the house is exploiting it and there's no way she can manage it on her own with this like supernatural <laughs> intervention <laughs> Yeah, there's not enough Imitrex in the world yeah. <laughs> to fight off uh, the gothic supernatural horror that is essentially creating these migraines. Exactly, exactly. And you, it puts her in a point where she's so disoriented that it's, you see her at multiple times, she walks into rooms and she doesn't know what she walked in there to do. She's kind of like time jumping um, because Poppy is like, you know, manipul basically manipulating like her sense of time and space. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's like just a ton of other ghosts <laughs> crawling around the house all Always. the time. <laughs> every minute of every day of every yeah. hour. <laughs> there's somebody somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's affecting the children too. So it's like not only is is Olivia dealing with her own, like she maybe she already had some sort of mental health need before. So she's dealing with that. She's dealing with the stress of they're trying to flip and resell like literally a mansion, not really yeah. a summer that DIY <laughs> shows no signs of the renovations that have been just completed yes which is yeah I don't know how that just got glossed over in one conversation in one scene because Olivia was responsible for drafting those plans and yeah. making the updates and every time her husband went back to review them and he saw that they were gone yeah I, I don't know why that didn't raise any red flags <laughs> but that would have been the end of the series and oh well. true and I think I think you can we can look at that as like kind of like a it could be a plot hole of like mm -hmm. everyone's really okay with 
how weird this is happening. But I think that we can see that as we see this later on as the children become adults, that this family is very good at pretending that nothing is wrong. Mm-hmm. And even though every member of the family has some sort of like horrible thing they're dealing with, whether it's addiction, infertility, uh, being clairvoyant, <laughs> no matter what it is they're dealing with, they're very good at pretending it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and just they kind of like have scattered to the corners of the earth and, and are avoiding each other. And so I think we can we could look at it as a plot hole or look at it as like even from the beginning, this family was all about best face forward we don't address the weird stuff that's going on and I think that's also represented in the way that the father let me double check his name Hugh Hugh yeah the way that Hugh just like bails (laughs) yes (laughs) he's like oh my wife is trying to murder my children I'm just gonna go I'm just gonna take him and go I'm not gonna you know like we don't see him try to do anything else except for just like get out and go and then he refuses Mm -hmm. to tell the children for the rest of their lives what really happened and it's for him it's all about we just keep moving forward we don't dwell on the past even though that's the one thing that's keeping the family from being together is that there's this secret and no one believes each other about what really happened and that I think that's kind of the crux of their adult relationships with each other well I I agree in that I feel the time even the time spent in the house we don't see any conversations between the family members of do you see the giant man with the bowler hat like floating through our child's bedroom at night? Um, you know, did you hear the scrambling and the dumb waiter the other day? <laughs> there's there's none of these conversations. And one of the biggest, in my opinion, one of the biggest, I, I'll say it again, red flags, is the center of the house. So the room with the red door. Mm. Uh, upon rewatching, I realized that it appears as a different room for every member of the family. Yes. And that is not touched upon by anyone at any point, but that is the room in which they all converge. And that is the room where they confront the lie. And that's the room where they quote unquote overcome. And the story is then the solution to the story is realized and a resolution is reached. Um, Once they, like you said, address that secret that Hugh kept from the family and really face the reality of what happened what has been happening and essentially just realizing whatever is going to happen is going to happen but we're going to be united in the face of it right right and everyone at that final conclusion has to make a choice mm-hmm. of will I stay in the house which means dying yeah. you know and be with the family or will I continue to live my life um, and certain members make certain decisions, I think, kind of based on what their role in the family was, right? Like Hugh and Olivia stay because, you know, they're, they're the head of the family, right? They, they kept the family together. And Nell stays with them, um, partly because she kind of gets tricked <laughs> into becoming a ghost, um, but also because she was the one who, through adulthood, was trying to reunite the family, was trying to keep mm-hmm. everybody together. Um, and I think it's really fitting that the older siblings don't stay as ghosts mm-hmm. right that they, they they move on because for them it was never about recovering the family it was about establishing their lives um they they weren't as affected as as Nell and Luke were which are the twins right. uh, so there's some fun twin stuff <laughs> <laughs> there is uh you know something that I just I just thought about how you had mentioned that um when Olivia first loses it and Hugh realizes that his wife is trying to kill his children and imprison them in the home 
and that fight or flight takes over and he flies with the kids he i upon rewatching i i believe that the promise he is referring to when he's having this private conversation with olivia mm. he promises her i will stay but you need to let the children go mm, mm-hmm. like the children need to make the decision if they decide to leave you need to allow them to leave and in their stead I will essentially sacrifice myself to be here with you for the rest of eternity. Yeah. Um, or until and, you know, sages this house out. <laughs> yeah. Until this place burns down. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody needs to light the bowl, the boiler downstairs yeah. because really fire is the only thing that's going to help at this point. I have been seeing some interesting ideas that each of the children represent a different stage of grief. Mm. And that even though Nell is the youngest, she may in her essentially acceptance of her role as a ghost and as a mediator and as a bringer together of angry siblings she may be i she may be i taking on the role as acceptance within those five stages which oh, may speak to why she stays in the house also she right. has no choice because she's dead now but, yeah um, she already got she got murked <laughs> which speaking of motherhood she oh. okay <laughs> the whole point and i this is this is something that when I when I watched it and I realized it it hit a different place mm. for me personally. Um, Nell was essentially tricked into hanging herself mm-hmm. because she was offered the locket that her mother had promised her when she was a child. Yeah. So her mother, this figure of comfort and trust and security, offered her a symbol of those things, and then loving lovingly went. To put them on her and that's when Nell wakes up staggering over the edge of whatever that weird Horrible internal staircase. balcony yeah. staircase thing was <laughs> like the most rickety staircase I've ever seen <laughs> in a home I guess they didn't the renovate that they should have renovated that first that's what you rip out immediately you start with the you start with the walkways and the stairs yeah. the doors and the windows and I don't know I'm not I just watch a lot of HGTV uh, <laughs> anyway <laughs> anyway but it, she was ultimately betrayed by her mother, betrayed right. by this symbol that she had grown up loving. And then just, I, I mean, not betrayed by the house, but she was just taken by the house because that's what the house wanted was her and anyone else it could get. Right. And I think that's where we see that the house is, at the end of the day, is just whether we call it energy or an entity, you know, it's just kind of like a force, but it is the individual who makes the decisions within the house that becomes evil, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, Hugh, his intent is to, okay, we'll live out our lives as ghosts, but mm-hmm. like, we'll protect, we will protect the children by letting them choose. And Olivia isn't able to do that. Olivia is swayed by the house's promises. And yes, ultimately uses her role as mother to trap her youngest child mm-hmm. in hell. <laughs> And there's something so, because, you know, as we go through the show, we finally piece together what happened that night that Hugh flees with the children. And you see um, Olivia has invited Luke and Nell to the Red Room and also the daughter of the caretaker. So I don't think we've mentioned them yet, but there are like caretakers of this house who, if you're a Mike Flanagan fan, they come back in some of the other shows, but we'll get to this <laughs> later. Um, they, you know, they have their own history with the house and it has impacted the wife of this caretaking couple in the same way and so they they have this rule that they are not on the property after the sun goes down because of course at night is when 
evil stuff happens but so olivia has their child in the red room with her um mm-hmm. because that child has become friends with luke and and Nell, even though no one believes this no one believes that this child is real because she's so <laughs> isolated but anyway mm-hmm. olivia then serves them essentially rat poison in a tea party setting and it's it's one of the most horrifying scenes because it's so innocent right and and the children see it as like this happy beautiful room their mother is you know beautiful and whole but in reality she's already dead from a gruesome head injury and she's like <laughs> disfigured and then you see this the the caretaker's child has drink drinks the poison before luke and nell and it's gruesome right it's like a horrible mm-hmm. death and i think that's when it really clicks it clicked for me of like oh this is showing like sort of like the extremity of motherhood of like you can go too far to protect your child um and do and and rationalize something so horrible in the context of i'm protecting you know what's dearest to me mm-hmm. um but i thought it's so interesting that luke and nell don't drink the, the poison that it's just this other child it's like the the collateral of her intense love for her children yeah i i agree she didn't seem to hesitate when she provided a serving i believe the little girl's name was abigail she abigail got the same thing everybody else got and olivia didn't seem to spare that a thought she was just maybe moving on automatic as the hostess with this fancy little tea party and yeah <laughs> the little play settings and pieces of fine china you're total. I think that's a really good way to put it, though. Abigail was collateral, unfortunate yeah. collateral, which is interesting considering we didn't even know that she was real. Yeah. Until she dies. Yeah. You think she's As, one of another ghost because she looks like a little ghost. She does not get a lot of sun. She's very fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's she's a blonde child. Very but fair her, skin. Her parents model this sort of. It's almost like a reclaiming reclaiming the house because they die on the house grounds mm-hmm. um in the old age like there's this very emotional scene where the husband is like rushing to bring his wife to the house so that she can die on the grounds of the house because then she can stay with her daughter in eternity and they kind of like reclaim this and i think are kind of the model for hugh and olivia of like okay it's not ideal that we're all dead <laughs> but we can we can live as a family in this house and not do what poppy did because what poppy does is essentially neglect everyone that she may die well i mean it's like a reclaiming of that i agree i think um the caretaker family the caretaker couple excuse me um they're really exemplifying kind of the silver lining of the situation Mm. where the husband as his wife is dying of old age the husband realizes there's a way for them to be reunited because who knows what happens in the afterlife if there is an afterlife yeah and rushes his wife there to ensure that they're together and then returns at a later date so he can be with them versus Olivia and Hugh who have an eternity of just this tense uh (laughs) you made me give up my children and Nell who was tricked into being there exists with her family so in both in both groupings we have mother father daughter yes um, mother father youngest daughter I believe the caretakers only had the one daughter mm-hmm. so there's that parallel there and how it like the most uncomfortable of roommate situations uh, <laughs> just coexisting in their own their own circles one in kind of making the best of it and one in I'm sure is absolute misery oh yeah yeah would love a follow-up on 
you know, five uh, years how are they eternity. now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah because olivia and hugh di- like die by their own hand basically like they mm-hmm. they they choose to die so they can stay in the house but the caretakers decide to live their lot li- like live their natural lives they could have killed themselves the day that abigail died mm-hmm. like they, they really could have if they wanted to stay and i think a part of it is kind of like they're skeptical <laughs> because it's like how how do the rules of eternity hell house work (laughs) you know we don't really know um but i think it's so interesting that they they choose to live their lives that they would have lived with abigail um and part of it is because they they choose to live to kind of keep people away from the house Mm -hmm. and and to look over who stays in the house because they know the impacts of the house um but they don't i'm not saying it's the easy way out but it's like they don't take the violent way of staying Mm -hmm. in the house they they live their lives out and then try to die in the house whereas Hugh and Olivia are like on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> I I agree. I think the caretaker family didn't seek that immediacy. Yes. And I, I do wonder if that's because uh, we see in the show after Abigail dies and Hugh essentially rescues the twins, he crashes the teacups to the floor to make sure nobody drinks any more rat poison. Um, Good move. A Hugh plus fatherhood. A, yes, A plus. Good job. <laughs> Good job, Hugh. <laughs> Fight or flight kicking in again um he makes a promise to the the husband of the uh the groundskeeping couple as they're now referred (laughs) um that he will not sell or burn the house down because they want to continue to visit their daughter right so i'm wondering if a part of that lack of well let's just go in there and kill ourselves so we can be with abigail immediately there may be there may be some caution there of well let's see if we can actually trust this family Mm. Uh, because what if we gather in there as a family in this spiritual afterlife for him just to burn the house down as soon as the two of us are dead then it's essentially they're making the opposite sacrifice that olivia thought she was making for her children where olivia thought i'm going to kill my children so they will continue to live quote unquote continue to live um the groundskeepers said we are going to we are going to continue living so that our daughter may continue to exist right that may be putting too much on the characters it's just a thought that i we we can put whatever we want on the characters (laughs) media (laughs) consumption is all about projection (laughs) it really is so that's the thought that i will put into those characters heads is that they they refrained from going in there and opting to commit suicide to be with their daughter because they did not quite trust as they really shouldn't have uh yeah, <laughs> the crane yeah. family uh so they could ensure that she in a way lived on as a spirit within the house for as long as possible and then once the cranes were gone who knows what happened to the house some kind of state overseeing government entity bank just owned it and sat on it who knows uh, but maybe, maybe that's when they just yeah now it's a condo maybe that's when they're gonna airbnb it um maybe that's when they decided okay well it's now or never at this point because we are literally at the end of our lives so if somebody does purchase it or burn it then we'll at least have this time with her right yeah time is just such a big factor i think in in most of flanagan's work and uh we mentioned briefly mike flanagan is the creator of the Hill House series, the Bly Manor series that we're going to talk about next episode, and now Midnight Mass, which we won't be talking about this round, but I'm sure we'll do another uh, um, 
episode about it because both of us have watched it and loved it. And he really big, big Mike Flanagan fans, I think across the board, right? Both of us. Mm -hmm. Um, But he really (laughs) does try to weave in these like these very big concepts, whether it's like time, death, you know, family relationships, like it's not just a ghost story. There's, there's so much to it. And time really does play a role, especially in the haunting series as we'll, we'll talk about it with Bly Manor as well, but whether it's like unable to keep track of time, like the passage of time as a trauma, like there's just a lot of time stuff happening. And so, yeah, this decision by the caretakers of we'll take whatever time that we can get to be a family again. And we had to hedge our bets to make sure that that time was protected as much as possible um I mean what a way to live your life right of like always having that in the back of your head of like we have to protect this home because it's where our daughter lives in, mm-hmm. in, in eternity and we're trying to you know manage the time we have with her because she was taken from us so soon and it's just I think that's where the the like horror and the deep tragedy <laughs> really make this such an emotional such a different experience in in the horror world I agree I mean we see each, I mean, the caretaker family and then each member of the Crane family Mm. as each episode kind of follows a different member of that family. We see how they've gone about into their adulthood, how they've, how they handle themselves now as an adult with this heavy drama (laughs) existing in the back of their minds. (laughs) Some make money on it. Some Mm. um, refuse to let people in. Uh, you know, some people are furious at the world. So it's just interesting to see how personal the horror can really get. Mm. Um, I mean, (laughs) one of the biggest, one of the scenes that made me go, no, 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 was when first we learned that Shirley is a funeral home director. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, (laughs) it is, it's a, it is a passion of mine. Um, for some reason, the family allows to, uh, to the family allows her to perform the autopsy and to prepare her baby sister Nell for her funeral for her viewing. Yeah. And we learn that Shirley has always had strange interactions with the dead, which may be why she's attracted to her line of work. But there's this supernatural sight that she seems to have where we're not sure if it's real or if it's surely hallucinating, but we see the presence of a beetle crawl out of the mouths of, I think the kitten that dies when she's a little girl that she is cradling in her hands. And then again with her sister who's laying out on the table. Yeah. After she's removed everything else in her system, there's still that beetle existing, which is just, it's that echoing of the events, the kitten and the Nell kind of this, this vulnerable small creature that Shirley cared greatly for being reduced to this thing this decay exactly uh and then being visited by like a reminder of if you're not horrified enough by this Shirley here's this here's a beetle which I wish I had done a little more research into but um I'm sure there's some heavy significance in that beetle as well well I I love the point that you're making that the show doesn't really give us any evidence of if it's a hallucination or if it's like a true supernatural experience and that's I think the some of the ambiguity that the show plays with each character right of like Mm -hmm. from Olivia all the way down to Nell we're unclear of is this a hallucination and and this is a family with just like deep mental illness (laughs) they're 
that was activated by the trauma they -hmm. had in the house or was it something about the house activated these like supernatural abilities in in each of them because each of them do have some sort of like ability that is that started the house and for Shirley we see it with the cat the dead cat the dead kittens to her sister it's it's always echoed back to something that happened to them in the house Mm -hmm. um and yeah, it's it's unclear of like, is the are these just people who are who are grieving, who have so so much unresolved trauma that they're falling apart mm-hmm. and unable to like, you know, especially with the trauma is reignited after Nell's death in the same house. It's like it's in the same place where their mom died. It's like, come yeah. on, guys. <laughs> it's just layered upon layered. Yeah. Or is this the house still has influence over them no matter how long, how old they are, how long they've been out of the house how far away they are the house still has influence and I think as an audience we can hold both and and, you know and enjoy it from both perspectives maybe not enjoy but you know understand it from both perspectives but I like that you brought that up of yeah it's and Flanagan does a good job with this and a lot of his stuff he doesn't beat you over the head with what his message is everything is very ambiguous and that's what makes it so scary because you're like I just want to know the answer (laughs) if you could just tell me the answer I would be calm (laughs) I do think um kind of to piggyback on that with each sibling and I'm I don't have a specific example for everyone but when we are as an audience with Luke for example Mm. the opposite the other twin to Nell Mm -hmm. um Luke is a habitual drug user Mm-hmm. And, and a hard like hard drugs he's and a, a heroin hard user. drugs not just yeah, yeah. <laughs> hard drugs uh he's been going through a very rough time for quite a while if um we are to take what the other siblings say at face value um <laughs> which makes sense but you could when you're an audience member with luke and seeing what luke sees and seeing what he's experiencing you could chalk that up to his drug abuse you could yeah. say this is probably a combination of, you know, sleeping in the skate park and being exhausted, being hungry, being high. Um, But then on the other end of that, we see his older brother, Steve, who um, has made money on this trauma, essentially, who wrote stories about it, Mm -hmm. who has enough money to distribute to his siblings, (laughs) who lives a very comfortable life with a wife, that they have the opportunity to go IVF if they so choose, um, very much on the opposite end of the income spectrum from his younger brother. Yes. Um, Steve, who, when asked about the presence of ghosts and the idea of the supernatural with a, <laughs> with a straight face, tells the audience that ghosts are just wishes and traumas projected, mm-hmm. which... Mm. I think could be a point of view of any anyone in the audience. They could say, yeah. "Well, this is just this is just the, this is just a family with a weird dynamic that we're not really shown, um, and the spookiness of the house is kind of amplifying their personal wishes and traumas." Mm. Or then the person sitting next to that audience member says, "Or <laughs> is the house digging in, mm-hmm. and then?" forcibly projecting these images interesting this is what will scare you child so i will show you these images to then i don't know terrify you into becoming a drug user later in life right um and what's yeah and with luke you know he he his 
particular haunting in the house as a child is the tall bowler hatted man which I will say on my first watch absolutely scared <laughs> the heck I could just like <laughs> I could not handle that tall man he was too tall and his feet were not <laughs> on the ground <laughs> but you could argue that because I believe the twins are like five mm-hmm. when they're there they don't have trauma before mm-hmm. the ghosts appear right because the ghosts start appearing to them before Olivia you know does her little tea party Um, The children are already experiencing things. And I mean, you know, we don't know, maybe within their five years, they did experience some sort of trauma, but we're led to believe that this is like a happy, you know, struggling family. They, they maybe aren't doing the best financially, but like at the end of the day, they always have each other and their, their love is what, you know, keeps them together. So what trauma is there to be exploiting in the children at the beginning that they would see these ghosts? So it's kind of like the show is giving you little pieces of evidence to be like, no, Steven, (laughs) (laughs) you are wrong but then again there's there's pieces of evidence to prove that he's right because a lot of the ghosts that everyone sees kind of manifest as whatever their particular issue was Mm -hmm. with with the um the trauma that they experienced so yeah it's always it's always playing both sides yeah yeah oh i mean if that if so following the logic that the house is providing these terrifying images um for the horror of their guests the house is then providing that center room the red door room Mm. to provide them a sense of comfort yes so the house is providing the good and the bad the stick and the carrot essentially um uh, an interesting point that i was i saw about the tall ghost the (laughs) bowler hat man that is henry that is the uh husband to poppy um and something that i thought because you're right, the children are young. They're, they may have trauma packed away in there, but yeah. again, that's something that we're not privy to. Um, and I, I thought I was curious about that too. I I liked Luke as a character, and I thought he deserved something a little more interesting, maybe a ghost, a little more meat on his bones. Mm. But perhaps Henry was checking in on the children, like a father would check in, coming home from a late night of work, or perhaps he just favored Luke because mm-hmm. Luke was a flesh and bone stand-in for his son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we see later in the series, uh, when we're following Luke for his episode, Luke becomes isolated. He uh, tumbles down the dumbwaiter into the cellar where mm-hmm. Henry walled himself up, very a cask of a Montagliato style, <laughs> um, to escape the demons, which were his wife. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Which was his <laughs> wife. She won't find me in here. Scrape, scrape, scrape. <laughs> um, and I believe that's the apparition that Luke sees crawling towards him, which yeah. that was probably the worst scare. I have yes. goosebumps thinking about it right now. <laughs> this little boy with his eyes blinking big behind his glasses, just watching this thing crawl its way towards him. And like flickering and then, horrible and that's light. It. And yeah. that's it. We don't get to see anything else. And we know Luke is an adult. We go, okay, you're yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. And side note, I mentioned, I mentioned to you offline that I went to the, the Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios and went through the, the maze, mm-hmm. but that was about Haunting of Hill House. And they had a room that was like simulating that scare where there was like a guy crawling out of the wall. And what they would do is they would like shut the lights off and then flicker them back on in that room. So there were p- periods when you were in that room where it was pure dark. I mm-hmm. lost my absolute mind. I was <laughs> jumping three feet in the air, 
clutching the person in front of me and I was just like no 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 no, because this is the worst scare from the show you're not doing this to me now (laughs) and so yeah that that something about that gross half man crawling at you is just bad (laughs) it just really gets you I would personally I would say that particular scare got me so badly because I see Luke child Luke is very vulnerable Mm, he is alone he is young he's terrified already um Who is going to hear him scream down in the cellar? Nobody. They didn't um, even really know there was a cellar. Yeah. Until I, that there, point. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gothic horror house. There's <laughs> always a cellar and there's always an attic. And there's probably a greenhouse. Ten bodies in each. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but then I think the creature, the apparition itself, it doesn't move in that ghostly way. Mm. It's because the ghosts we see, like, when we learn that Olivia is dead yet she's still around to serve tea to her children the apparition that we see in the basement um or the cellar whichever it may be he is not whole mm-hmm. and he is not gory he is like a shriveled humanoid creature so it's got this uncanniness to it yeah where you think like what's the horror like what where's like the big axe wound or where's the the blood or where's the close-up on like the face twisted in horror like where is yeah. it you're waiting for it but you don't get it you just get this shape and that <laughs> sorry it's an it's an audio medium not a visual medium <laughs> <laughs> she's crawling her hands but it's just, crawling <laughs> little spider hand yeah. <laughs> uh, you get this shape that you don't know what it is and you're i was afraid for luke because i didn't know what it was yeah and I wasn't sure how he would handle that in that yeah. situation right and you're right that it it's that's that scare looks so different from all the other entities or ghosts or whatever we see in the house and I think you could interpret that as although the the body hasn't been found yet of almost like the reaction a child would have to seeing a dead body mm-hmm. of like I don't know what this is there's no like I don't have a schema to fl- slot in <laughs> what this thing is and so it becomes almost more terrifying um it also it's just we weren't expecting it it truly is a jump scare <laughs> it yeah it's it's a cheap jump scare um because we were already terrified we saw the dumb waiter and we said don't do it and then yeah. he got in the dumb waiter the dumb waiter fell and we said don't do it yeah. and then once they open that cellar it's just it's all downhill from there so thanks is that, i i remember reading in stephen king's book on writing <laughs> titled on writing yeah he does a brief section about exploring literally the unknown is Mm. what could ultimately be the scariest experience for a reader Mm -hmm. so that we did not know that there was a basement or a cellar the family did not know that it wasn't mentioned luke is the one who discovers it so there's all this there there's this fog of fear of unknown and then we have this creature which is further unknown and Honestly, I didn't even connect the dots that it may have been Henry until maybe like the second or third. Watched that. Oh, yeah, I had to read that. Up on until Reddit. then, <laughs> it was just a scary. It was just a scary thing that yeah. happened to poor Luke. Yeah. So, but I think this is a great um, segue to kind of talk about like which sibling represents which things. Like as we've talked about in the house, Luke is attracts the attention of <laughs> Big Daddy Ghost, um, and in adulthood, Luke kind of represents the struggle with addiction Mm -hmm. um which i i 
I thought was so interesting that it was like it is centered in like he he is kind of drawn to substances because of grief and and that is you know in the psychology world right that's something that we know happens that there's a lot of like co-occurring substance use disorders with mood disorders or other mental health issues and particularly with PTSD and so people who are diagnosed with PTSD are more likely to also be diagnosed with substance use disorders because it's an escape and so Luke really represents I think kind of that aspect of, of dealing with grief and trauma of like trying to escape um, and then ending up kind of like in a worse place because of the way that you tried to escape um, mm-hmm. and they also really show how how addiction is treated in a family because w- when we are introduced to the cranes as adults uh, everyone's at their last straw with Luke except for Nell because they're they're twins right <laughs> like, yeah. she's never going to abandon him but the rest of the siblings are at their last straw they're done giving him money they've you know we find out that they've paid for rehab it just really is such a kind of visceral depiction of how addiction can play out in a family um and I think as the audience there's there's no judgment on the other siblings I mean you can have personal judgment but <laughs> the show is kind of saying like well some some people have to put down boundaries and say we can't give you any more money because we don't want to enable this and some people have to deal with it in a different way and it's it's not whether Nell is doing the right thing and Shirley's not it's just everybody has to do has to deal with it in their own way um so yeah so Luke's thing is obviously addiction and and daddy ghost um then we have Theo who's our classic middle child she it's it's they really they do a lot with her as a little girl where she's not quite old enough to hang out with Shirley um but she's too old to hang out with Nell and Luke and so she's just kind of this like very isolated little girl who has this very horrifying power where when she touches someone, she can like see memories or like, I don't know, I, how would you describe her power? <laughs> she, it's through touch that she gains insight. Yes. Uh, so technically, word. <laughs> technically clairvoyance through contact. Um, yeah. We see it. Which we when... debunked in a different episode. <laughs> Well, uh, not in Mike Flanagan's universe. Um, we see it when she assists the police in capturing Mr. Smiley, a mm. local pedophile. Um, all she has to do is lay herself down on the couch that existed in his apartment, and she sees the horrors that were done upon that couch. Yeah. Um, which the police apparently, this is an aside, but the police apparently accept. <laughs> and Mr. Smiley's book, thankfully. Um, I will say, as someone who is a mental health professional, uh, so just for some context, the, Theo becomes a therapist later in life, like a, but she works with children who, mm-hmm. it seems like typically are in the foster care system, so she's kind of working from a trauma-informed perspective. She's working with this little girl. She begins to suspect that something is happening. She sneaks into the house, or that's, she is invited in, but she gets into the house, finds out the child is being sexually abused by the foster parent, and then just calls the police and the police show up and arrest him. Now, in the real world, <laughs> first of all, I'm not getting into that house. I don't have clairvoyance. <laughs> and uh, you don't just call it police. Like, there's there's protocols, and, and you know, some could say that, that Theo should have reported it at the beginning when she mm-hmm. first works with this child and realizes that something is wrong because she's an expert in 
uh, childhood trauma and would recognize these signs. Um, so in the real world, we never get that satisfying, like, I'm going to sit outside the, the house and watch you get arrested for these crimes. Um, I understand why it happened in the story, but that's, it's you never really get that payoff <laughs> in the real world. Speaking of the opposite of payoffs, the awful moment following up Shirley preparing her sister for her wake, mm. preparing Nell for her wake. We see Shirley visiting her sister on the table and I believe very very briefly laying a bare hand on her forehead. Oh, Theo? Yes, sorry, yeah. Theo. Yeah. Theo does go in to employ her powers and I can't quite remember exactly what she sees, but we see Theo is absolutely devastated. Yeah. By whatever it is that she sees or whatever it is that she feels and you can only imagine having that ability and living living with the things that you've seen and the things that you felt which is just strange that she several of the children seem quote-unquote well adjusted for adulthood yeah and it's interesting to me that out of all the kids you know in a in a numbers game nobody sought professional therapy <laughs> at any point but uh what time frame was this do we know what uh, era they definitely have like iPhones mm. uh so I feel like it's definitely supposed to be like late at least late 2000s <laughs> 2010s so they yeah they very Therapy well was available. Access. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it wasn't the olden days or back when therapy was institutionalized I guess yeah right or available only in institutions right along yes. with lobotomies um <laughs> So really, it's just, it's how each child copes is very strange, but I'm sure we'll, we'll continue on. Yeah, yeah, and, and so like you said, Theo puts her hand on Nell's body, and, and we later find out that Theo saw how Nell went to the house and was like tricked into basically hanging herself, and so for the rest of the show, Theo is like an absolute disaster, because she's trying to like reconcile you know, my basically watching the ghost of her mother kill her baby sister, mm -hmm. um, but also knowing in a way that it was suicide that Nell went to the house knowing what could happen if she went back to the house. And, mm -hmm. and it's so interesting because you're right, nobody goes to therapy, but Theo went to school to become a therapist, and you would think. Now, I had to attend therapy as part of my program, so maybe Theo had to get a little taste of it. You would <laughs> her program. <laughs> or maybe something resonated with her when she was reading. But even the siblings, as divided as they are, nobody leans on one another. Right. I guess Luke tried to lean on them and they got tired of it. Um, right. Right. And that's kind of the, the way that this family system works is we can help superficially. You know, maybe we'll give you money or platitudes, but we don't know how to help each other in a real way um, because they I guess they really, just really didn't learn how to because Hugh kind of just takes them on the run and really leaves them out of the dark about what's going on. Those feelings uh, you're feeling, just tamp it down. Just, but dad, <laughs> tamp it down. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Do you think they stopped at like somewhere to eat afterwards or you think he just drove until he could drive anymore? I feel like he probably drove until he almost drove into the ocean. Because <laughs> as a parent, if I had those kids in the back of the car who had all these questions for me after like the 45 minute mark, I'd be like, all right, McDonald's. Just to Everyone keep you guys McFlurry. happy for a second. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care if the machine is broken. <laughs> My wife is dead. Sorry. This is what happens to your brain when you watch too much horror. <laughs> that I think that actor, when I initially watched the series, I didn't really care for him. 
but then he does the understated discomfort really well in a way that I feel is very similar to like Martin Freeman where there's this like it's minute and it's very palpable but it's not a big like yelling shouting eyebrows it's just it's very realistic like it's cringe I would say you but I just mean in general (laughs) maybe me fine yeah i i could see my father mm. displaying some of those signs of anger because yeah. perhaps as a father he doesn't want to show his kids that he is absolutely falling apart yeah because somebody has to drive the car somebody has to get them away from the house because who knows what is actually happening right is it is it a distance thing are they already sick am i sick like we need to get as far as we can because i need to protect my kids no, I think that's a, a really good point. And I think we kind of see how Hugh never gets out of survival mode, right? Mm-hmm. Like that initial flight is like you called it earlier, it's fight or flight. And as we've been talking about on the pod, right? The neurobiology of horror, like that fight or flight, we, your conscious brain can't really override it, right? You just, you're kind of at the whim of the monkey brain <laughs> <laughs> until you get to safety. And there actually is research that people who experience like chronic trauma whether it's from their environment or maybe they're in abusive relationships. Uh, And I would say in this case, Hugh's chronic trauma is like this not knowing what, what the consequences of the house are, right? Is it, is it going to be coming after them Mm -hmm. the rest of their lives? He's like constantly on watch. Um, And people who experience that type of chronic trauma, their fight or flight really never turns off. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you were always flooded with adrenaline and then you become desensitized to adrenaline. Like, I think that I think you're you're really hitting on that of like like yes Hugh is this very kind of understated we only see him get truly angry outwardly a few times and it's it's like very serious to the family they're like oh dad doesn't do that right it's like very odd for him and I think yeah his whole life has been this like constant chronic vigilance and he just doesn't know how to not be in fight or flight mode he doesn't know how to, and when you're in fight or flight mode, you can't relate to people. You know, you can't build relationships when you're trying to fight them. <laughs> Which, you know, that constant stress that I'm sure he's under may be why he's seeing his wife. Mm. I mean, even as, even in the present day, as the time jumps ahead, he's seeing Olivia at Nell's funeral. Yeah. She's co- like coaching him on what to say and, um, I'm of the mind that that wasn't supernatural. I'm of the mind Agreed. that he's really clutched onto these memories of who Olivia was before the house infected her and took her from him. And that is really just his subconscious because as um, I am a mother and I am a wife, <laughs> there are times where I can be, I can imagine what my husband might say in a certain mm. situation. I might imagine what his reaction might be. And that in combination with the stress that he was feeling, it might just be just a manifestation of that. Yeah. Of him telling himself, I don't know what to do. And his subconscious going, well, you do, but you're not listening to me. So here's Olivia. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get you through this together. (laughs) All those neurons and chemicals working together to (laughs) get this man on his feet. (laughs) You got to go father. this man out the door every man of the morning. (laughs) Tie your tie. Let's go. Yeah, you know, and I think you're, I think there's something too that, because I forgot about that, but yeah, we see him 
always he's always talking to this representation of of Olivia and and there's like an acknowledgement that he knows she's not real and I think toward the end we see him acknowledge that she's not a full representation of Olivia that she is Olivia pre the house and I think him deciding to stay in the house is us seeing him integrate his memory of Olivia with the reality Mm. and of still choosing her even though the reality is is that the end of his really I guess the end of his relationship with Olivia was was bad and she was not the person that he remembers or the person that he married whether that's because of the house or whatever you know whatever happened to her um Mm -hmm. he has to integrate that and I think we do that we don't do that to this extreme in relationships (laughs) but we do that right especially when you're in a relationship with someone for a long time you have to kind of hold who they were when you first met them or, or all of the good things about them that you really fall in love with and the day-to-day reality of like living with someone sucks <laughs> and people suck and make mistakes. Um, but, you know, do you throw away that relationship or do you integrate the good and the bad um, and kind of, you know, stay with this person because there is more good things than bad things. Now, poisoning your children with rat poison, <laughs> I would say grounds for divorce. <laughs> well, there is that uh, line in the traditional marriage vows Uh, for better or for worse yep (laughs) which is an alternative title for the last episode I guess Um, yeah so Hugh yeah Hugh really made that decision and it may have been a part of there's the love of my life and there's my partner and I have an opportunity to be with her and also um, she's crazy and if I don't do this for her then she's going to take my whole family yeah and I think because uh, you talked about kind of each of the characters representing like different aspects of grief I think Hugh is kind of a classic denial like I mean he can't even he can't even really admit to himself until toward the end you know what Olivia has done mm-hmm. um you've said that Nell represents acceptance I I, I agree um because she ends up being the one who, who stays you know and, but Nell also she's kind of triangulated in between all of the family members and Luke right she's the only one who will stick up for him and keep helping him and she's trying to beg everyone else to invest in him um, but at the same time Nell is going through a very traumatic experience where um, she we see here that she gets married to this was this I thought was a little unethical she marries her nurse <laughs> mm-hmm. or the medical assistant from the sleep study she was in he like does her intake interview and then is like do you want to get coffee and I was like you can't do that <laughs> But either way, they get married and that he, um, he has like a seizure in the middle of the night, like this horrible seizure while Nell is in a sleep paralysis episode, because we learned that Nell kind of ex- uh, experiences sleep paralysis off and on. And that's when the bent neck lady will appear, mm-hmm. uh, which we later learn is Nell herself <laughs> traveling through time and space as a ghost. Um, but she's stuck in sleep paralysis, like watching her husband seize and it's, it's truly horrific. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's nothing she can do about it and so as she's trying to help her brother trying to keep the family together trying to accept what has happened to her mother she's unable to accept what has happened to her husband and she begins Mm -hmm. to become alienated with the family because she blames the bent neck lady for her husband's death and nobody Mm -hmm. believes her um, that the bent neck lady is real Um, and it's it's sort of like a twisted full circle thing that it's, it's really herself who is the bent neck lady and, and we realized that she was showing up at these times to warn Nell uh not not to harm her but Nell never gets the message so I said a lot of words <laughs> in that but I think that 
I like that you, you you're seeing Nell as the acceptance role, um, but I think it shows how hard acceptance is. That even mm-hmm. if you can come to a point where maybe you understand somebody's death or you understand this trauma, um, it doesn't mean you're in like a static state of acceptance, right? You mm-hmm. can like come and go out of it. I do wonder if when no jumps, falls, um, Push, is pushed, <laughs> is pushed uh, and subsequently dies, we see her passing through time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the image around her blurs and it appears as though she's dropping through layers of yeah. something, of a structure. And then when she stops, when she falls, um, she is faced with her younger self. And I believe that is the first time we as an audience see child Nell encountering a bent neck lady. Yes. So that may be, I wonder if that's a moment for adult Nell realizing, oh, like you said, I've been trying to warn myself this whole time, but really it was just a catalyst for me to come back to the house. Yeah. When bent neck Nell was trying to tell herself, don't come back here. This is this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is what's going to happen if you come back here. Yeah. But then adult Nell said, you know what? I will face my fears. I will face her. I'm going to fight that bad neck lady. <laughs> <laughs> I will win. <laughs> and, the, you know, I think it's, and I would say that she, she embodies acceptance for me in a way because she just, there's really no other option for her at this point. She is at the end. She has perhaps felt denial and anger and I I mean she maybe just has felt these things from like an outside perspective like when she was experiencing that episode of sleep paralysis watching her husband die um it was so horrible and sudden and she was unable to really do anything about it kind of like every encounter she's had with the bent neck lady and all the way back to when her mother invites her to that tea party and she watches another child die in front of her you know, mm-hmm. Nell's life is kind of pocketed by these like very intense traumatic events. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's trying her hardest to make sense of them. Um, and I think, you know, as, as you've been talking, I really realized that I think Nell really embodies this idea of like, you can try to accept death, but you know, when people say like, oh, there's always a reason, there's not always a reason for something, right? Like, yeah. you know, Nell, tries to warn herself you know tries to you know she tries to do all these things like you can conceptualize Nell's suicide or death as like oh the purpose this is that she can warn herself but that's not the purpose because she always comes back to the house right if we think of it as like a circular (laughs) time situation right that this this horrible death there is no purpose to it it doesn't serve the purpose that we're trying to assign to it Um, and how do you accept something that doesn't have a purpose um I don't think that you can in the way that we like our our minds are able to to find acceptance but I think I'm getting a little existential now (laughs) I well I think I think that's really the only way we can is that we in with the benefit of hindsight is that it's just our it's in our nature not to apply generalities but I would say it's just in our nature to apply meaning to things after the fact yeah um because I think one of the hardest things for somebody is to hear it was meaningless or uh, it was random or we don't know because that's so unsatisfying and it's a loose thread to be pulled that just can't be ignored. Yeah. I think. And that's, I think that's what 
um, as an anxious person, somebody <laughs> with diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder. Hey. <laughs> hey. Um, <clears throat> that is something that I've had to learn through therapy is that I can't pick at all of those threads. Mm. Not that I've been told horrible things happening in my life are quote unquote random, but <laughs> I've just learned that pulling at the thread is really what makes it worse. To yeah. use another analogy, it's just picking at the scab. It's yeah. never going to heal if you don't let it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Which is a great, I'm glad, glad that you've learned that lesson because I think some of us with anxiety haven't. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I interact with people every day who I see parts of myself reflected back. Mm-hmm. And all I can do is be a friend and uh, when in doubt, just really <laughs> push the therapy angle. <laughs> I make commission. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's used car salesman out here, getting everybody in the therapy. You know, it's it's something that I think I've leaned into therapy throughout my entire life, and really each time it's I feel it's very similar to going to the gym. Even if my first month at the gym isn't very helpful, if I go back six months later, I kind of know what I'm doing. Yeah. I kind of know my way around by the ninth time I go back to the gym. I know where the water is. I know how to get my locker open. I know how many sets and reps I need to do. Yeah. I found therapy has really layered itself like that in my mind where each lesson is just building up on top of itself. And as a total dork of a student, I just, I really appreciate that because I've been able to really summarize everything that I've learned and not that it ends. It doesn't, there's no like final chapter, um, yeah. <laughs> but I can essentially some, I can bring together all these lessons that I've been taught and I can really learn how to apply them in real life and with real situations. Yeah. Um, and that's really, I think the crux of therapy is it's not, you can cut this if you need to. <laughs> it's not great. It, it's not solving a problem or leading you to a solution. I feel, I feel it's giving you the tools to really handle yourself day to day and to yeah. really work through some of these things because sitting down with somebody for an hour isn't going to solve an issue anything <laughs> anything um, anything conclusively <laughs> yeah um but it's 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 important because it gives you you are then given the tools um to move forward on your own essentially yeah. to not uh succumb to like you said certain coping mechanisms um to really learn your way through it or feel your way through it uh, right. to get on on the other side it's such a great case for why all of the crane siblings should have gone to therapy and why all of you listening should go to therapy <laughs> <laughs> well we have two siblings left to really mm-hmm. run through it we've kind of talked about i, I say let's go to steve steven um mm-hmm. we've kind of mentioned him as he profits off of the family trauma so in, in the show he is an author who does not believe in hauntings, but writes this series of books about hauntings. And his book that pushed him over the edge to being famous was about the haunting of Hill House. It's like, LOL, he wrote the book that the show is about. Um, But he writes a book about his family's experience. um, And we come to find out that he didn't really consult Mm -hmm. with anyone if they would be okay with their trauma being published and sold. Um, And he also doesn't really like distribute the money (laughs) that he, I mean, he does like send money to siblings, but it's not like a, you know, an even five-way split 
because we all kind of contributed this story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Stephen also represents denial for me because we come to see how similar he is to his father, even though he like rejects his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think Stephen is also a really good kind of parallel for this idea of like we become our parents. <laughs> whether we want to or not Mm -hmm. um because our parents are who are raised us right if we're going off the nurture versus nature you know we are genetically similar to our parents Mm -hmm. most of the time (laughs) but when we're also raised by our biological parents we are nurtured by them and you know into them to to learn behaviors and learn uh ways of thinking from them and Stephen, i think because he's so he's the oldest at the time of the incident (laughs) with his mother he kind of takes on this like co-parent role where he's supposed to be like daddy number two and -hmm. he's supposed to help keep everybody safe because I believe he's tasked with helping bring the kids out of the home when Mm -hmm. when Hugh realizes what's happening and so we see this like he's very closely molded after his father but he completely rejects that so not only is he in denial that what happened to his family was real whether it's mental illness or ghosts or whatever like he's he's in denial about that he's also in denial about like how much he is like his father and that that it's not always bad right there are good parts about his father that he embodies but he's not able to embrace those because of his denial i think maybe it's that similarity that really is what is pushing them apart not just the shared trauma, perhaps. I mean, I, I could see getting older and looking back at that situation as Stephen and saying, why would you make me do that? Why would you make me responsible? Yeah. Why would you send me back into that house after you knew what was happening? Yeah. And really just pruning that anger <laughs> the older he gets and having that having that similarity with his dad, maybe the concern is that, would I do that to my child? Yes. Which we see Stephen is absolutely terrified about the idea of having children. His wife is desperate for kids and Stephen just can't, he, it's not a flat out no, but it's a, it's a fear. It's a definite fear of him continuing the line, him providing offspring. We're not exactly sure what it is, but perhaps that's his concern is that um, it's more nature than it is nurture. Or that maybe he's concerned that despite his attempts at an opposite type of nature that he's compelled to provide or nurture, excuse me, that his he's going to uh, not abuse, but he's going to mistreat his children in the way maybe he feels his father mistreated them. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, you know, I'm thinking about it. It is interesting how, yes, uh, Stephen writes The Haunting of Hill House um, in a direct call to show itself um it's interesting that i think he does perfectly embody denial even though he's faced with it every single time he sits down to write yes he had i mean he's there's gotta be there's a reason why he does so well i mean i i don't think he's quite the stephen king of the universe but he's maybe like the dean Koontz. yeah (laughs) no offense the airport stephen king (laughs) yeah he's yeah he's uh no offense to Dean Koontz fans. I've read quite a few of his books, but I just, I wouldn't put them at the same level right. necessarily. So we know that Stephen's doing well for himself. He's doing well with the story. So you would presume that he's either a really great writer or there's a certain amount of humanity and emotion that he's bringing into his writing. That people are, readers are 
consuming his writing and saying, oh, this, this feels real. This, this is touching a place of mine. So Stephen is being vulnerable to a point on paper in this story, quote unquote story. Um, but then around family, he's absolutely not. None of that happened. Exactly. You, you were all hallucinating. You're all crazy. Mom was crazy. Yeah. It was mom's fault. She did this to us. Um, and it's also dad's fault. And it's also dad's not fault, telling us. But we're all fine. <laughs> we're all totally fine. We're all he's fine. dropping Luke off at rehab. <laughs> Except for Luke. Luke is bad because Luke does drugs. Yeah. So. That's because he chose to do drugs. That makes him bad. He always chooses to keep doing drugs. Yeah. He, ch- he chooses yeah. to continue that quote unquote lifestyle. So from a. Uh, like couples counseling perspective here's a little perspective on Stephen and his wife Um, because we see throughout the movie right that his wife is is struggling with this like issue of infertility she wants to have a baby and Stephen is very non-committal even though we as the audience are like this man does not want to have a baby not even just with this woman but with anybody um, but he's unable to tell her and and we don't it's kind of like his conclusion of his storyline is him being able to tell his wife like here were the reasons why I didn't want to have children it's because I'm afraid and they kind of commit to working through them after he has a series of hallucinations <laughs> in the house of his wife being like gross monster pregnant anyway all of that to say so what Stephen and his wife are doing is something we call accommodation in in some forms of couples therapy which is where uh you have an issue that you have an opinion about and your partner has the opposite opinion and this usually it's for like big stuff right like if we're gonna have kids if we're gonna raise our kids in a religion you know how we handle money maybe you know one is a saver one is a spender um and instead of addressing the difference of opinion or you know saying this is actually a deal breaker for me I never want to have children so you know I can't enter into a relationship with you because I can't give you what you want um couples love to just pretend it's not an issue (laughs) and you know from the wife's perspective she she may be thinking I can change him I can get him to want to have a child and from Stephen's perspective he's not being fully honest because he can't straight up say to her no I don't want to have children he does this like weird sabotage stuff um and so just from a you know if anyone's interested in pursuing couples counseling that's going to be one of the things that you're going to have to work on and that's one of the things that underlies a lot of our conflicts with our partners is that we're unable to admit you know that there's not really a compromise there's not a compromise for if one person wants to have a child and one person doesn't I mean I guess getting a dog (laughs) right but but you have to kind of um you kind of have to be able to own your side of that right and Stephen doesn't get resolution in the story until he owns his side of it and is able to say I actually didn't want to have children and here's why now they are able to compromise in that she wins (laughs) she's gonna get a baby but I I just thought that was very interesting how this very like normal like this is a conflict that lots of couples go through I would say all of us have probably had this experience but in the context of this horror movie or show um the tension that it brings up really adds and and it manifests when Stephen goes to Hill House that's who he sees as his wife and they're like relitigating this argument I would say from my recollection I think Stephen's wife and Nell's husband 
maybe the only outsiders, like the non-Crane or non-previous quote-unquote tenants of Hill House that we And Shirley's see... husband. Oh, excuse me. And Shirley's... Yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. He is yeah. there. Okay, so we've got the three. We've and got three kids. spouses. Yes. I <laughs> forgot Shirley had children. Um, but they are her whole world. That right. I mean, not to dig into it too soon, but there's some <laughs> couples counseling <laughs> needed there. Tips. <laughs> Uh, but we don't see a lot of we don't see a lot of outsiders outsiders in the house Um, but it makes sense that they would see those people because they are so closely linked to them emotionally and um, perhaps mentally they're just on their mind as often as they must be right and and outside of the house their interactions with the non-cranes I think really highlight the dysfunction of the family because like you know I think we're done with Steven, <laughs> but we see um, with Shirley and her husband, um, you know, Shirley, like you mentioned before, does the autopsy and prepares her, her sister's body for burial. And her husband is the only one who is like, this is unacceptable. <laughs> like, yeah. He's the only one reacting like a normal yeah. human being. Because like, you know, some of the other siblings are like, yeah, this is weird, but this is what Shirley needs to do. Like, this is, everyone's just like, this is Shirley's thing. <laughs> like, she'll be fine and her husband is like like he supports her and he wants her to be okay but he's also trying to be like excuse me voice of reason here also I've known you for however many years like I know this is not a good idea Mm -hmm. um but it's sort of like this dysfunction this pathology of the family kind of overpowers any outside voices um and her husband ends up having to kind of give up (laughs) And he just instead like paces outside of the door waiting for her to be done, which I thought was like, I think her husband is like one of the sweetest characters. <laughs> He's trying his best. His family sucks. <laughs> he is. I can only imagine that first Thanksgiving when he was like, oh, okay. Okay. You were not exaggerating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that leaves us with Shirley. So what do you, I guess I'm kind of having trouble placing Shirley in the like acceptance I guess, would you say anger would be Shirley's? I would say anger. I mean, yeah. she, she not just because by default, being one of the, <laughs> <laughs> being one of the last stages, but she's just, she has this controlling nature that I think is her anger manifesting. She mm. may not be flipping tables and screaming at her husband, but she is trying to control everything in her life. Um, because that is probably the only way that she's keeping a handle on things. You know, she's controlling the preparal, excuse me, the autopsy and preparation of Nell. Um, she's controlling the lives of her kids. Um, she's (laughs) apparently single-handedly running this funeral home because I don't see any other employees here. (laughs) Um, I can't remember if it's a husband-wife thing or if it's just her. He's kind of like the business manager because he's like, excuse me, you're offering everybody funerals at discounts if you need to stop. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so then she's the sole, she's really the only person who works then with the family um, outside of the business management. uh, And she's the only one who works with the guests, which I believe is uh, what funeral directors may refer to the gentlemen and women who end up downstairs. Um, so diplomatic. 
honestly in my watch through Shirley may be one of the weakest characters for me she doesn't interesting stand out even though she does have that kind of consistent uh apparition of the man drinking scotch um, oh yeah from the conference she went yeah to. her her like funeral director affair <laughs> which i'm sure is not an actual uh, apparition i think that's just a manifestation of her guilt yeah um similar to like uh hugh seeing olivia i think that's that's yeah. all surely <laughs> it's just a projection yeah and it's just it's just her subconscious putting something out that she can't avoid but she knows ultimately she's gonna have to um fess up to it because like you said her husband is the sweetest character <laughs> <laughs> maybe best. outside of the groundskeepers <laughs> she, he's just yeah. really he's really there for her through thick and thin um yeah, yeah. see i i really loved the character surely one just because the actress who played her i think was just phenomenal and did such a good job with like that barely contained emotion and like rage that's always bubbling under the surface of Shirley like she you could just see her seething and all these interactions um but I think you're spot on about like the the control aspect and so Shirley I see her as kind of being she's kind of left out of a lot of the supernatural stuff because mm -hmm. she had she sees the like beetle vision and like we've discussed she sees the man drinking scotch but that's just because she's guilty because she cheated on her beautiful wonderful husband <laughs> just kidding but like that's kind of the extent of her supernatural abilities um and although steven doesn't seem to have he doesn't have any supernatural abilities he's the only one who who knows the most about what happened that night mm -hmm. and so shirley is stuck in this place where she's the oldest daughter but she's not the oldest child so she's not given as much responsibility as steven was on that night and and we see that kind of all the scenes where she's a child she's like what's going on she's like always demanding answers she wants to know how things work which serves her well as like a mortician because she's like how does the body work <laughs> she you know she wants to she wants to know everything about death and how it works um but she so she's left out of the knowledge of what happened that night and she knows steven knows more than her and isn't telling her and she's also left out of like the three younger children have these supernatural experiences and she has had some but isn't able to integrate them in the same way as the younger children she's not able to believe mm -hmm. um so she's on the outs from there and I, I just see her position so interestingly as being the one who's kind of running the family like you said she's very controlling she's the one who tries to demand steven doesn't send checks to people she like tears up her check you know she's determined to run this funeral home by herself she controls all the decisions for her family you know her her nuclear family and her family of origin um mm -hmm. but she's falling apart right and we see we see by the end that she's an absolute wreck and she needs to just acknowledge that and so i thought that really made Shirley such an interesting character um that she's trying to hold everything together but she has no idea what's going on with this family she's left out of all of the experiences really you know hearing you lay it out like that i it, it makes sense um seeing her character then grow up it would make sense to me that she would develop that anger that being aware being old enough being smart enough to know um you know dad and steven know what happened and they won't tell me what happened but the younger kids are coming to me and asking me what happened to mom etc cetera, etc cetera. just this 
this anger that I'm sure grew the older she got of, I don't know what happened then, but <laughs> I damn sure well will know what happens now. Yeah. Um, I will be aware of every minute of every day of my family, of this family that I have created. Uh, there will be no secrets and there will be no uncertainty except for the ones that she creates. Right. Because like you said, she is just on the precipice of something because only one woman can only handle so much. And, yeah. you know, she, for whatever reason, seeks comfort in the stranger from the, um, I want to say it's like Con- an embalming fluid conference. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I don't it was know. Like embalming some- supplies convention. <laughs> But, you know, she, she sought comfort in him, not because of, I think, an anger, not because of a, uh, some kind of rift with her husband, but just because right. she may have felt that out of control feeling and she sought physical comfort from someone when she right. needed it the most. Whereas we see Luke turn to drugs mm-hmm. for that same kind of feeling, f- fulfilling that feeling, surely does it with sex. And, and I think part, I think we could probably get into how that underlies her relationship with Luke of like, you're no different than him in that you are seeking something to fill that hole or that emptiness. Um, Mm -hmm. You just sought out something that wasn't as dangerous (laughs) and, you know, isn't as like, you know, life altering when you get addicted to it. Uh, Well, not to say if you get addicted to anything, it's life altering, but you know what I mean? Like she, she, she sought like, like the sexual comfort of another person um mm-hmm. which didn't result in her like having an addiction to an, an iv drug <laughs> but it's the same it's the same mechanism um and shirley can admit that right she just she looks down on luke as like you know you've rejected all of our help i've done all i can for you and it's like surely you have a lot more in common with luke than you think you do mm-hmm. but because you're so bottled up you can't access <laughs> maybe she doesn't to a bottled up woman (laughs) she just doesn't realize that her tea kettle is whistling already (laughs) she's because luke's luke's addiction is it's so visible it's so apparent to the rest of the family in his appearance in his mannerisms in his habits and routines oh luke's late again don't bother calling him he won't answer um let's not worry about our baby brother or anything. Um, But what Shirley did was something that more than likely she probably thought she could keep private. She thought that she could keep to herself, even though she, as we've posed just a few minutes ago, she may have this innate inability to be confronted with secrets, Mm. even when it's her own. It's this just maddening idea of there's this gray area and I have to know have to find out yes and then when she tries to be a keeper of a secret it just it just spins her out of control yeah so and i think also in that there's some disdain of you know i i I made mistakes and i locked it up so why can't Mm -hmm. you do that luke right like because you said we see so many interactions where he's late or he shows up to a family affair and he's high you know he misses they like don't invite him or they don't let him into nell's wedding you know it's like all Mm -hmm. this all these you see all these consequences of his addiction but you know Shirley isn't able to see the consequences of you know her own slip-ups or failings um and so she looks down on Luke for that um right. but yeah this would love to get this family into the room and just really <laughs> break down those walls <laughs> I think maybe a 
I think maybe a Zoom meeting for all of them would probably be better. Yeah, they shouldn't be um, in the same room. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like one of, like when we see in Nell's, during Nell's funeral, when they all come together, there's this dangerous, dark, frenetic energy that builds. Mm. And it just, I mean, with them, and then they have this ability to call the supernatural forces that are either drawn to them or still clean them from the house. Um, as I saw posed when the sisters are arguing, when Shirley and Theo are screaming at each other, uh, the knocking starts. Yes. Which has been theorized that that is Nell reaching out to them. Mm. When Stephen and Hugh are arguing, Nell's casket falls over. Right. Bear, which is another jump scare that got me. Yes. <laughs> I'll be honest. This I was anticipating me. like her to sit up. Yes. Um, but just but to it's see real. Just, it's like this could happen. Yeah. The casket fall. It Gravity. Just, it, it just it wasn't a big dramatic like the casket didn't slam shut. There wasn't like a groan. She didn't have like a death rattle happen. It was just the struts failed and she just fell. Yeah. And it it's immediately startled the dad and the son out of whatever it was that they were arguing about. And she, I feel like it started at her funeral. She just could Nell consistently reappeared to the siblings to like hey hey bring it up stop yeah because I, I believe we see her right as the bent neck lady we see her kind of it flashes of her during that like big shot uh, at the funeral yes there are... we learn that she was like seeing the funeral from the house yeah there was that weird overlap of time and yeah. space <laughs> where even though she's trapped in the house she's like projecting forward into the funeral yeah um, and then we later see her in the car when the sisters are on their way to the house yes and she forces her way physically in between them yeah um jump scare number three that really got me uh, <laughs> it really ramps up at the end <laughs> it does it's <laughs> It's just, uh, I'm sure they have a professional on staff that just sits in and goes, this would be a good moment. <laughs> Absolutely scare the pants off of our viewers. Yeah, it's Flanagan. <laughs> it's Flanagan. He's just cackling to himself and making notes in the script, I'm sure. Well, I feel like this is the perfect place to kind of wrap up. Hopefully we haven't given too many spoilers that people won't, you know, seek it out <laughs> if they want to. Um, or you have watch the show you know feel free to drop an email uh giving your thoughts because i'm curious what other people think um besides what me and becca have had to say but i guess last question becca is you have talked about the jumpsters have gotten you but what what is your favorite like ghost horror moment from haunting of hill house you know honestly i think i think it would have to be when we see Nell as a little girl laying on the couch Mm. um it's it's kind of like a sitting room there's the greenhouse in the background behind her uh so it's like a sunroom kind of area and i'm not sure if she's sleeping and she's she's experiencing sleep paralysis or if it's the first and sudden appearance of the betnik lady just dropping down above her sleeping form yeah that then develops into sleep paralysis for her later in her adulthood um i think that moment was the moment I realized that the show was really rather different than what I had been anticipating. Yes. I think I went into it very, um, again, Amityville horror, um, very, oh, this is just going to be the outlook. You know, it's going to be a big scary house and there's going to be these things that like feed off on the people inside of it. Um, but there was just something very, I thought you would do that <laughs> to a kid. 
you yeah. would scare her like that and it's not just scary it's horribly violent i mean yeah it's kind of cutesy the bent neck lady because i'm sure neither of her parents explained they may not have listened when she was explaining what this apparition looked like so this is just what nell went along life thinking she may not yeah. even thought this is a broken neck this is a victim of a hanging she just went about thinking this is a person with a funny crick in her neck um i don't know there's just it that particular moment for me i think yeah is one of those like it's almost too scary but it's also i also enjoyed it uh, yeah what about you what is one of your favorite scares or creatures i guess ghosts i have to say that when we see luke escape from rehab to track down his friend and he's being kind of hunted by the bowler hat guy but you only see him from the back and it's like in a crowd of people like you know Luke is out on the street in the middle of the night but there are people about and so you see the ghost like within a crowd of people and there's Mm -hmm. just something about like you know you would think this would be the safest place essentially right like Luke's not trapped in a place there are other people around and he's Mm -hmm. sober like he's he's legitimately sober um but you're still so afraid of like the house kids will get you here Mm -hmm. Uh, and then and that's also when we realize that that Luke knows that Nell is dead he almost goes into withdrawal at the moment that she dies um he's like shivering he's cold like his body temperature has like physically dropped it's almost like he's dead with her and so it's like the combination of the sibling trauma the twin bond horrible tall ghost was just always got me um and this desperation of like this is the the part where we see Luke is really committed to his recovery and no one believes him it's like it just all comes together and there is just something so creepy about like the back of that man's head in the crowd and it's like no one sees this bowler hat man who's like you know not of this time (laughs) standing in the middle of the road you know a part of me because i again i can't get the idea out of my head that he may not have been a uh, malevolent ghost Mm. that that was him that was him trying to be with Luke when wow. Nell died. Mm, right. Cause we, we kind of talked about it. It's like, that's, he's a daddy ghost and he's like connected to Luke for some reason. Yeah. And I mean, like we, when Luke is a kid, we see him like physically like check in on Luke. It, it's just, there's these moments where there could be violence and they're like the guy, he, the guy, the ghost of Henry could have very well gotten closer and been there. But like you said, in this particular scene where he's just mixed into the crowd, it's like he's, in my opinion, when I hear that, I just, I think of, yes, Luke is seeing him and being frightened by his appearance, but he's not running at Luke or calling at Luke. (laughs) He's, He's just existing in the same space as Luke. Right. And I think it's that ambiguity for me that is so scary of like, if this is a comforting presence, why don't you do some comforting? <laughs> do you think he's always there and Luke was just seeing him in that high stress of Nell's death moment? Or do you think like it made an appearance to be there with him? I think it's always there and that's why Luke uses. Uh, he doesn't see him. Like if he uses enough, he stops seeing. Yeah. Because mm. I, I think there was also some s- symbolism to the type of drug that Luke uses. He uses, a, a, he uses an opioid, right? He uses heroin, which is a has a depressing effect on the nervous system and one of the most common things for people who use these types of drugs is you just pass out mm. you fall asleep or you black out or something 
it's not a stimulating drug, right? Like, you know, stimulants like methamphetamine or cocaine, you're up, <laughs> you're running around, you're seeing things, but with opioids or other like depressant drugs, you're out. And so, and we kind of see that, that Luke has built up enough of a tolerance that he's using quite a bit of, of heroin. And I, I can see it being kind of this hint toward, he sees something, something in the world is bothering him and he's trying to shut it down. And so mm-hmm. I'm personally a fan of the, the theory that the ghost is always there because it follows him because it has this connection to him, but because he doesn't understand it, he's, you know, that's one of the, one more thing he's muting out with, with the drug he uses, but I think just a theory. I think it's a good theory. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me for this conversation about Hill House. Um, I think we both recommend that anybody watches it. Um, as always, sources will be posted on the website for the articles that we used um, to talk about some of the research with this one, although we kind of really went off book. Um, and the next episode that you hear will be another conversation with Becca, but we're going to be talking about the second installment, The Haunting of Bly Manor. So stay tuned for next week for that episode. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.